from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCowrie this week in Katowice, Poland, site of the COP24 conference. On this week's edition, a conversation with Tom Steyer, why IKEA is selling home solar systems, the investor take on climate risk, and unpaving parking lots and putting up a paradise. Ooh, I feel a 49-year-old song coming on. This week on 350. It's December 14th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me stateside from 4,244 miles away, according to Google Maps, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Greetings. Greetings, Joel. I, uh, I just have to ask you, because your, your column this week was very atmospheric, if you will. Um, it sounded like it was very gray and snowy there. What's, uh, what's it like in Poland this week? It's very gray and snowy. It's been <laughs> snowing the last few days, uh, and uh, it just uh, fortunately it's like you know thirty three degrees, so it's not sticking to the ground. It's but it's it's so it's kind of that you know beautiful snow coming down without the hassle of having to slush around and you know get your feet wet. Yeah, it's gray, and you know it's also um, a polluted town. Um, I mean, people are uh, even though you don't see it, and in spite of the snow. People are coughing and they've you could, they've got scratchy throats. This is uh, one of the most polluted parts of Europe. So interesting place to have a climate conference. Where have you been spending most of your time? Well, um, when I come to these things, this is uh, I've come to a number of COPs over the years. The COP is the Committee of the Parties, uh, this UN speak for the big climate conference. Um, I, I don't go to the uh, the big government gathering. I mean, I stop in there. I've got credentials to go in and it's always sort of interesting just to see that UN world and all the pro protocols and the incredible diversity. It's the, it is the ultimate diversity of, of people, human gatherings. But I go to where the corporates are, where the big companies are, are going, where the innovation and entrepreneurs are. So Let's see. This week, I and I've spoken in, at a lot of events uh, and moderated and emceed a half day at one of them. So it's the Sustainable Innovation Forum, the World Climate Summit, uh, the Investment COP. Uh, we are still in had a gathering. I uh, emceed for uh, part of that. S and P, the big uh, financial ratings and indices firm, uh, had a. a big event that was really interesting. I was <laughs> interviewed on Facebook Live to talk about uh, what companies are doing here. And uh, gosh, I guess that's all I can remember other than just a lot of walking around and seeing people and, you know, soaking it all up. I'm jealous. I know you, you probably don't think I should be jealous, but... <laughs> well, you know, it's not, you know, it's not Paris. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's an interesting town. Uh, interestingly, at least to me personally, uh, the next town over from Katowice is... Uh, is called Sosnovitz, which is where my dad was born. Uh, Ninety, no, let's see, a hundred and three years ago. He's obviously long gone, but um, uh, and I've been to uh, Sosnovitz. It's an interesting, another interesting town, another coal mining and coal burning town. I, what's interesting, Heather, is that the the conference facility, this convention center uh, and arena, uh, 
is sitting on what used to be a coal mine. It's you know, and 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 it's powered by two coal-fired power plants uh, not far from here, and it's still very much coal country. Why the United Nations wanted to have a climate conference here, particularly since the Polish government is, you know, sort of like the U.S. government is kind of backsliding on a lot of things, is is interesting. Um, but yeah, here we are in uh, you know the West Virginia of Europe, I guess. Yeah, the coal uh, controversy is what we, of course, have been hearing most about stateside, um, with the United States delegation really promoting the whole idea of clean coal, even though there was a, some research out last week that proved that it actually was um, more <laughs> environmentally uh, bad, if you will, than, than the regular stuff. And of course, um, the thing that, that I was reading about was the, the sort of the no confidence vote, if you will, on the the data, right? The IPCC report that came out, there are four countries, including the United States, were able to sort of, uh, you know, make sure that the language didn't welcome that report, but that it was, you know, noted, that the report was noted. So that was sort of, sort of one of the things that, you know, stateside we were reading about. Those four countries, uh, United States, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait are now being referred to here in Poland as the new axis of evil. Um <laughs> No, I mean it's you know it's funny if it wasn't so sad and it's depressing. And, oh, it it's is. Really it's depressing. But and and that stunt that the United States government delegation did, where they brought in a, a team uh, to talk about uh, why we need more fossil fuels, uh, not just coal but natural gas, uh, it was basically laughed away, uh, laughed off by the rest of the conference. Nobody really took it seriously, and I don't think that anybody you know who. And the Trump administration actually expected that anybody would, but they had to come do that for reasons that are unbeknownst to me. But, you know, it's it's a lot harder to be American uh, at these events. I mean, not that anybody, there's plenty of Americans and nobody's, you know, harassing us, but it's just like, you used to be able to walk around with a little more pride, even though we were, you know, we've always been recalcitrant uh, on, on climate issues. Um, at least people look to us for leadership. Now, we're just kind of a... You know, between us and Britain, I had an interesting conversation with a bunch of Brits. Um, this is just a little side note. And uh, and it occurred to me that we are the new declining empire. And we were comparing notes. You know, this is what Britain's been going through for, I don't know, 50 years of from this once proud uh, nation that's now sort of walks around a little bit with its tail between its legs and um, and and what that's like just psychologically and in the you know the, the influence and perception in the rest of the world and of course Brits are not you know they're still very much part of the uh, the world uh, community of nations and uh, people like the Brits and all that it's just politically it's it's a bit of an outcast and you know now it's I guess maybe it's our turn at least for a while. You know, so just I know we, we need to move on, but just one last question for you. Who is the leader then? What country is the leader? Well, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure I could name one. Um, there's, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I don't, at least from a climate perspective, well, you know, there, there are the Nordic countries, for example, Scandinavian countries uh, are doing a lot. Um, and, you know, Northern Europe in general is is advanced in some of this but there's you know great pockets of innovation obviously in china now and in other parts of asia um and you know everybody's got a role to play and everybody's got a got an, a booth or exhibit or some kind of uh demonstration here uh in in Karavice. and and 
they're you know touting what they've got to say. Sometimes it's about oceans. Sometimes it's about forests. Sometimes it's about food production. And, and I guess that's the good news. Uh, so let's try to you know put a uh, exclamation point on that before we move on. That that there is so much going on uh, in every country, uh, and everybody has a role to play in all this. So and that's very clearly on display, literally and figuratively, here in Poland. So with that, let's check out some of the stories in our Week in Review. I would like to start us with a transportation story, Joel. Um, and this is by a, a person that's been at some of our conferences, um, Yasha Franklin Hodge. He was Boston's chief innovation officer, if you will, and he was working a lot on a lot of different um, digital sort of initiatives, including um, how the role that digital services and technologies play in transportation. And this week, he wrote a piece, and I, I found it fascinating. Uber and uh, Uber is expanding and rebranding. Is that a good thing? And so, really, what he's focused on is the um, the, the amassing of of different services. So we we all think of Uber, of course, as a ride sharing company, the big uh, kahuna, if you will, in this space. But they've now acquired um, a bike company, bike uh, scooter company. They've invested in um, Lime. They've got peer-to-peer car sharing. So in other words, like you could share with, with someone, someone else um, in your neighborhood. They've got a transit ticketing app that they're now involved with uh, from a partner level. And so this is clearly they're, they're putting their arms out and, and, and giving a big collective hug to anyone that's got sort of a transit or, or transportation uh, service or, or application. And that's it, you know, that like on, on the, you know, on the you know, sort of service level, that's great. Like, okay, you have more choices and so forth. Like you could take a scooter, you could take a car, you could, you know, you as a consumer or a rider could, could have more options. Um, but the implications are also um, a little bit scary and frightening as far as a couple of things. Number one, choices, right? So if you imagine a, a world in which your entire transportation needs, right, are handled by Uber and you have maybe you have a monthly service, like kind of like Prime, could sort of um, push out some of these um, public transportation services. So, so that's one of the implications of, of this sort of monopolizing, right, of mobility as a service. Um, and then the other implication is, as of course, Uber and Lyft now are rumored to have filed to go public. And as a public company, a company like Uber would have a lot more um, responsibility to its shareholders. So if it's got a very low profit service in, in, you know, maybe, for example, a service for taking seniors to the doctor, can it support that service in, in a profit in a world where it has to worry about profit? So you know, it's it's a sort of a discussion of really number one, this is good, you know, because there's more options, but but also number two, you know, you might be pushing out some of the options that that make this an equitable world. But isn't this where competition steps in? Because mm-hmm. uh, all of those areas, um, and don't forget things like Uber Eats or the food delivery, and and they're I think delivering uh, Amazon or other kinds of packages in in some uh, cities in the world. The individual companies can come and pick off each of those things. And maybe they don't have the scale of Uber or Lyft, but they can get competition all over the place. And you know, and granted, 
you know, th those big brands could have, use their muscle in a lot of different ways to squelch competition. And this is where antitrust law and things like that are going to kick in. Um, but, you know, it, it is a mixed blessing. Um, and Uber and Lyft, as you say, as they go public, will want to, you know, may want to cut costs. And that goes to their how they treat their drivers and all kinds of things. But there's already been so much pushback on that that I'm, I'm just wondering whether this is, uh, it, it is a potential problem to be sure. But we've had this before with other kinds of services. So I'm hopeful that uh, between competition and maybe, maybe if we really need it, regulation to, to you know, make sure that they don't become too monopolistic, uh, I would hope that those would solve some of this. Yeah. So, I mean, given his point of view, like he was, he was in charge in Boston for a while. Um, he offers a couple of, um, of tips to, to cities, right. To, okay. So the answer, you know, the question is, are cities going to be active enough, right. in getting ahead of this and setting the policies. And so, um, he has four suggestions. Number one, mandating open data. That's we've seen that coming out in the in dialogue. You know, making sure that these companies are actually publishing information and that others can can use it as well, which would allow other services to bubble up around them. Um, protecting consumers that might not um, be that quote valuable and quote to the to the um, to the profit part of of the business and making sure that seniors, for example, can can get can get the services or, you know, and there's, there's not that many cars right now um, in the Uber network that are wheelchair accessible as an example. So making sure that there are quote rules and quote that, that require companies like Uber to think about it. Also making sure that there is choice, you know, so, um, you know, don't pick just one company in a, in a specific uh, region that you're going to work with. I um, mean, and finally, just, you know, what, what if you lose access, like what happens, like what, what could I do to, to be pushed out of this network, uh, make sure that the sort of the rules of engagement are very transparent. So, yeah, just a very thoughtful piece. Interesting stuff. Well, let's 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 shift gears, if you will, and move over to a different transportation story. One you wrote about Tyson, the the chicken company, is getting into trucks. What's going on here? So, yeah, I mean, this is a really we've been writing quite a bit about electric, the possibilities for electric semis, right? And clearly. Tesla, notwithstanding, a kind of a future technology, right? Um, we, we've got some companies that are investing in, in early models, but but not really something that's on the road yet. So what Tyson is um, doing is they they are part of a um, a program that actually was um, it's a grant that uh, was was made by the California Air Resources Board to test some technology from a company called Acades Power, and what Acades Power has developed is um, an opposed piston engine that basically improves um, the fuel efficiency of, of diesel engines, although that I know that, that they are testing other fuel types as well. Um, so the idea is to cut um, nitri nitrogen oxide emissions by up to 90%, right? Um, and, and also improve fuel efficiency. So this is, this is um, Tyson basically saying, okay, this, the, the electric vehicles, which by the way, it is looking at, and, and I'll, I'll show you an example of that, and I'll tell you an example of that in a moment, but they're saying, okay, we have an opportunity really in real time, test this, this technology. Um, and, uh, you know, they're participating in a grant. So they've, they've got, um, a very widely used route from Arizona to California that, that transports its products. And, 
so this these truck this truck will be tested on on that route um, you know so they have a lot of benchmark data on that route so they know what to compare it against now what makes this particular company interesting is that they have actually um, uh, in a, it, I'll, I'll just spend a moment on opposed piston technology because it was something I didn't know anything about but it, it's actually been widely used in in the past by the military so it's been around um, gosh I think 120 years um, widely used in in jets in in excuse me in planes in World War II um, the the this particular company has a grant from um, some other grants related to milita military contracts um, and it actually has a military contract for for using this technology in um, in tanks um, and they've also been involved with uh, they they're currently testing their technology through an ARPA E um, the Advanced Research Project Agency Energy Organization um, and so they've actually they've been around so that's one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting about this um, this relationship and you know Tyson's been involved with with fuel efficiency efforts for for a long long time they were one of the earlier um, Smartway uh, participants I think in 2005 they joined and so this is you know I, I talked to the, the the fellow that was in charge of the um, the fleet initiatives. His name is uh, is Robert Lyle, and he he uh, you know this is for him just part of operational concerns. He doesn't have anything environmental in his title. He sees this as a uh, just good business. So interesting. Anyway, so that's yeah yeah. Well, let, let's take take on one more story before we uh, get over to back to COP, which is uh, something we ran uh, on Monday about why companies should pay for biodiversity. Uh, really interesting article about uh, uh, why it's time for companies to start owning up to the benefits they're getting from ecosystem services. Yeah, and they describe the authors describe this as a new deal for nature. Right, um, it was written by Joanne Burgess and Edward Barbier, um, both with the Colorado State University, and they're both um, in, in economics professors there, and. Uh, you know, when I read this story, it was like one of those um, things that made me think, oh, well, you know, a lot of people are doing this, but they haven't connected the dots. They note that, um, you know, basically a lot of companies are going to be threatened by the loss of species and ecosystems. And they point to um, like the traditional uh, sort of businesses you think about, like farmers and, and, and agribusinesses and so forth. But they also talk about pharmaceutical companies and and the, the impact, for example, could be um, $563 billion to $5.7 trillion um, of different marine biodiversity uh, factors that could be related to anti-cancer drugs, for example. Um, insurance companies depend on, on biodiversity to, you know, specifically coastal wetlands for minimizing storms and hurricanes. So, like, if it's not there, they could be liable for more money, uh, for more payouts. So they, they offer a few examples of, of how not investing in biodiversity could, could impact a business. Um, and then they, they talk about uh, some of the sort of smaller initiatives um, that, are, that are happening. You know, there's people are dabbling, right? So they, they do point out that, that they, they estimate that companies, generally speaking, across all industries are spending, I think, about $10 billion B on different biodiversity efforts. So like species habitat restoration and and so forth and you see I mean you see a lot of these if you were to 
pick any company, big company, you probably will see a program where they've got a few million dollars here and there. Um, and coll collectively and cumulatively, they estimate that companies are spending about $10 billion annually. Um, but they think that we need $100, $100 billion. So that's a gap. That's a big gap of, uh, of money. Well, th so this, this harkens back to a story that, that we did back in 2011, uh, where Dow uh, was partnering with the Nature Conservancy to uh, try to understand, uh, measure and track the business value of ecosystem services on its own um, operations. And uh, that's, I think, you know, become, some of that's become operationalized. And, and, I, and I also believe that um, some of that could become a new, there may be some new business opportunities here that we'll see over the next year or so, uh, helping companies do this kind of thing. Um, you know, these ecosystem services is, uh, there's $33 trillion or so of things that, you know, companies don't pay for, uh, clean water, breathable air, pollination, uh, habitat protection, soil formation, pest control, things like that, that, you know, we kind of take for granted, uh, but is of direct value in, in that if, if companies didn't have to, and if they had to pay for it, well, they probably couldn't afford it. And so, so looking at these things through the lens of, of what is, you know, and it is the commons, the, you know, that the tragedy of the commons, you don't pay for it, you don't value it, and you use it up, and all of a sudden it's not there anymore. But I think this is really important that we start to look at this, and, and maybe, maybe you're not trying to pay for it directly at the, its pure value, but understanding uh, what those ecosystems do and what happens uh, when they go away might lead companies to start to protect them more. You know, it actually points back to what you were saying earlier, um, Joel, about um, investing, right, and disclosure. And I think maybe as companies start to really have to do that exercise and, like, look at the risks um, of not having some of these things, like, uh, if that goes away, if this ecosystem goes away, what is the risk um, on, our, on our business? I think maybe, maybe the dots will connect there and, and they'll be able to think about this in a slightly different way as well. So let's stay on this topic of investment and risk and finances, because uh, this was a big theme. Well, this was a undercurrent theme uh, here in at COP this week. Uh, stuff that companies were talking about and some environmental groups were talking about and maybe some of the country meetings were talking about it, but it wasn't part of the big headline. And, and I think uh, really interesting stuff is, is in terms of how this is going to start uh, affecting companies directly. Um, so one of the things that happened this week is a group of more than 400 investors managing $32 trillion in assets. Sometimes these numbers are so big that you can't get your brain wrapped around it. Uh, took some uh, fairly aggressive steps to uh, address climate uh, change. And they, they released a letter to call on nations to and fossil fuel subsidies, invest in low-carbon technologies, phase out coal, you know, all the stuff that you would expect. But what they're starting to do now is to really, you know, press companies more and to be able to equate this uh, with with risk. And and, and there was a, a something that came out in the, uh, the journal Nature Climate Change, one of the scientific journals that most of us never see, uh, that came out this week 
where some scientists working with uh, the Conservation International and the CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project, found that co- that companies are massively underestimating the effect of climate change on their work. So they analyzed about 1,600 companies' corporate disclosures, and they found that the you know aggregate risk that they're re- reporting is adds up to only tens of billions of dollars, whereas most estimates put the actual cost well into the trillions. And so this discrepancy is, uh, is basically saying that a uh, large, com- large number of companies aren't reporting the financial impacts that many of them are, are and, ma- and many of them are probably underestimating them. So this was, uh, came up a few times this week. Uh, I attended an event that um, our good friends at S&P Global uh, did. Uh, we're you know, looking at at, at climate and risk and and the implications for uh, investors and and the implications of investors uh, for companies uh, and this is this is a growing area. Some of it comes out in the uh, in the area of disclosure, the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosure. Uh, but what's happening? And this is just I thought uh, just an interesting framing is that you know we talk about ESG uh, metrics and that, that's basically uh, what are the uh, impacts of company operations on climate change. TCFD is what are the implications of climate change on companies, and so the, what's the risk and how are they addressing it? It's, it's just uh, it, this is going to be a big part of the conversation going forward. You know, what's the holdup? I mean, it seems that just seems such like a, such a logical shift. Is it just because it's another reporting exercise, or they're thinking of it that way, or are there standards around this? I mean, like, what's the what's the Hold up. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's the standards, and we haven't really had a good way of measuring this and articulating it, and that's what this framework, TCFD, is going to do, and, and um, companies are going to start to uh, uh, you know, report on that and create this. It's a framework for how companies should be reporting, about, reporting on it. What it means, basically, what it says is that companies uh, have to Look at different scenarios, the climate scenarios, one and a half degrees of temperature rise, two or three degrees. They pick their own scenarios and say, this is what would happen to us, our operations, our supply chains, our customers, our employees, our communities uh, in each of those scenarios and, and, and start to, to articulate that so that an investor could say, okay, uh, wow, uh, that's, that's a big impact. So now that you know that, what are you going to do about it? And this, I think, is going to start to change the investment picture uh, because it's there's a lot of big investors, uh, the Black Rocks and the Goldman Sachs's and the Vanguard, a bunch that are coming into the picture and l- starting to lean on TCFD. Now, how companies uh, report that and are they reporting it in a way that uh, makes sense to investors is a, is a whole different matter. And in fact, that is the exact topic of the Greenfin Summit that we're planning um, at our Green Biz uh, 19 event in February. And you like the way I gave a little event plug, you know, slipped that in there. Uh, but <laughs> uh, we, we will be t- we're going to bring together a group of about uh, 40 or 50 uh, big investors with uh, you know, 40 or 50 big companies to sort of look at that because for all that companies are reporting, they're not necessarily reporting the stuff that investors need to make risk-based asset allocation decisions. And that's that's what's, uh, I think, going to be an interesting shift in how companies report, not just on the sustainability, but actually from their CFO. So 
this was a big topic of discussion at this S&P Global event that uh, I went to. And uh, I, I talked afterwards with uh, Karina Benderski, who's the infrastructure credit and ESG finance professional at S&P. And um, here's that conversation. So Karina, you were talking about this mismatch between what companies are reporting and their ESG data and what investors need. I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the specifics about where is that misalignment? Sure. So I think what investors really want from companies is the ability to compare companies using the same set of indicators. But what we've found in our review of corporate disclosure around ESG issues in the development of our ESG evaluation is the fact that the information is either not available or if it is, it's of inconsistent uh, quality and also in some cases just not comparable whatsoever given the use of different emissions factors. It's also buried in PDF reports, so it's hard to access. Um, so I think that that makes it difficult for investors uh, to access that level of data that they need to compare companies on the basis of those ESG factors. But there have been a lot of developments in terms of reporting standards to help address a lot of those issues. Wasn't GRI supposed to solve some of that by making comparable data available? So GRI has done a lot of great work in developing reporting frameworks that a lot of companies utilize. I think the issue is around the specific metrics that are being used. Uh, GRI provides a framework, but companies can uh, report on different types of data and they can use different methodologies in uh, arriving at that data. And then there's TCFD, which brings a whole level of of reporting uh, and, and stuff that companies don't even really realize. How much is that gonna just cause a whole new level of confusion? So I think that TCFD is a real game changer. It was developed by financial institutions and market players to provide a common reporting framework around climate-related risks and opportunities that provides clarity around what types of risks we're looking at, what types of opportunities that we're looking at. I think that there's a lot of pressure on companies to report according to the TCFD uh, and just much more oversight in terms of that reporting by companies. I think there's still challenges with TCFD reporting, certainly around scenario analysis. I think everybody's trying to figure out how they can develop two degree scenarios, 1.5 degree scenarios, four degree scenarios, and there's still challenges, but there is it appears to be a lot of momentum to improve reporting and disclosure. And I think because of those commitments, because of those efforts, because of that momentum, we will see the market start to converge around a common set of uh, reporting standards. Do you get pushback from companies? There seems to be a lot of survey fatigue and ratings fatigue. And uh, do they just sort of say, basta enough, no more reporting or, or can you give me one form to fill out that would you know work for every stakeholder or supplier customer uh, how do you what do you tell companies that just are sort of overwhelmed at this point with surveys so survey fatigue is certainly something that we hear from companies. Uh, they're reporting to a number of different ESG service providers. Uh, but I think that 
Nonetheless, the market wants to know what they're doing along these factors. We talk a lot about uh, climate and the environment. That has been, over time, they've developed metrics and, and standards around that that have, there's been general consensus in the market. We start talking about social metrics. There's a big focus on social right now. That's still a big question mark. But I think that perhaps it would be useful in the market to have a, a single reporting around these non-financial uh, indicators. But I don't think we're, we're quite there yet. Although there are a lot of initiatives through the GRI, as you mentioned, the CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project. We also have SASB. So there are a number of initiatives to standardize the type of reporting. And certainly in our ESG evaluation, uh, we have a, a diagnostic questionnaire uh, to uh, collect company information so that we can then compare it. And we've tried to align with those existing reporting standards to the extent possible to minimize the, the survey fatigue that, that companies face. Yeah, I'm not sure if having multiple attempts to standardize things is actually going to solve the problem or just create multiple new standards. But I think that what, what do you think it will take to clarify this uh, or will this ever be clarified? Will this just be uh, a, a cost of doing business? Well, certainly currently it, it is a, a cost of doing business, particularly because investors want this information. I think this comes up a lot also in the, the green bond space around how do you define green? And we see the EU taking some really uh, progressive action on developing a taxonomy around what constitutes green. I'm not sure if that is going. there's going to be similar efforts around a, a taxonomy for, for ESG, but in the absence of that, I think uh, you know, there are a lot of initiatives out there uh, to provide reporting frameworks, and I think that that's probably the, the, the best that we're, we can do currently unless there are any type of harmonization efforts that occur. So where does this go in the next couple of years? I think that companies are going to start reporting uh, more information, better information. I think especially given access to new technologies, they'll be able to access that information, report it in a, in a more streamlined way. Uh, and I think they're going to respond to investor demands to provide that level of disclosure to the market and demonstrate that they recognize the ESG risks and opportunities that they face. Great. Karina Bendersky is Associate Director of S&P Global Ratings. Thanks, Karina. Thanks. One of the many things I did this week here at COP24 was to uh, uh, host a, a series of conversations taking place under the uh, auspices of We Are Still In, which is a group of NGOs that, are, that have stepped in when uh, the United States pulled out of the Paris Agreement. And one of the things I had the opportunity to do was to uh, introduce uh, Tom Steyer, the billionaire hedge fund uh, manager who uh, is now an activist and, and politico and fund, uh, funder of many environmental causes, and um, talked a little bit about uh, sort of what he's seeing and the role of business at COP. So Tom, based on your time here in Katowice, how are you feeling? I think that this conference will succeed from the standpoint of filling in the de its goal, which was filling in the details of the Paris Accord and taking it from a framework to a much more granular and detailed agreement. But I think that there's another question behind this, which is on the ground, are we in fact taking the steps as a country 
and as a group of 195 nations to do what's necessary to get us on a sustainable path. And I think it's clear that we're not. So that when I look at this conference, I think that it will accomplish its goal. But when you step back and look at that goal in the context of what needs to happen, it's clear that we're not doing nearly enough. Yeah, it kind of feels like we're actually moving maybe slightly in the wrong direction in terms of not just the climate uh, emissions, but also the the emphasis on coal uh, here, not just in coal country, but the countries presenting here or those that are sort of backsliding on some of their commitments. It feels politically like a really challenging, even more challenging than it's been. Joel, I don't think that we're going to get the kind of international cooperation and progress that we need without real leadership from the United States of America. And obviously this administration is not only not leading, it's doing everything it can to stop progress, to reverse progress. And so I think it's very unlikely that we'll get the, what we need until we've gotten rid of this band of deniers and liars. So given that, what's the role for the private sector here? What do we t- tell the business audience in terms of what they can be doing, what they must be doing right now to really step up to this moment? Look, I think that the we're still in movement, which includes states, municipalities, businesses, and nonprofits, has a very important role to play. And I think that the estimates I've heard is that with the leadership from those, you know, non-state actors, non-national, sub-national actors, we can get to somewhere between half and two-thirds of our Paris goals in the United States of America. So that is an absolutely critical thing for us to do in terms of keeping some momentum. But I think it's clear that for us to really reach our goals for the Paris Accord, and even more than that, to take the traditional American role of leading the world and standing for what's right, we need to have leadership in Washington, D.C. But again, back to the business community, do you see them stepping up in the ways that you would hope they would? Look, I think that we are seeing leadership from the business community, but I also believe, and so, and I think that they know that this is something that they have to go along with. But I think to describe the business community as a monolith is, you know, inaccurate, Joel. You know, I think that by and large, the progressive parts of the business community are insistent on clean energy. But I think that there's another part of the business community, which is a huge industry called the, you know, fossil fuel industry, which is the largest industry in the, in the world, which is using all of its political might and all of its economic might to try and make sure that the profits keep rolling in, the future be damned, the American people be damned. You know, we, our money comes first. So again, what would you like to see the business, the big corporates uh, doing, not just the progressive, but there's, and I'm sure there seem to be a fair amount of on, on, on the climate side, but what would you, what's your ask of them that, to help get past this situation we're in in the United States? Really what I'd like to see is I'd like to see businesses not just do the right thing in their business, but insist to their representatives, the electeds, that, that they do the right thing. That would be the breakthrough, is if the corporate leaders started to insist that we have clean energy policy, and they started to prioritize it in the way they lobbied, and they withdrew completely from the kind of retrogressive ideas like the Chamber of Commerce. Like, we will not support you because you are throwing us under the bus, so we're out. That would be leadership, not just 
quite, you know, doing the, you know, the right thing for their supply chain, but actually stepping up and taking a moral position and a leadership position in society. That's leadership. Do you see anybody doing that? Well, we do see, I'll tell you what we do see, Joel, is we see a bunch of technology companies as they build um, satellite operations around the country, insisting that they be, um, that they use clean energy generation. So we do see that. But do we see wholesale withdrawal from the Chamber of Commerce, which is an absolute, you know, essential part of the fossil fuel fight to, you know, push back against appropriate climate policies? No. You know, we need the big companies to go to the chamber and go, you're doing this, we're out. You're not getting our money, you don't represent us, and make the Chamber of Commerce disappear as a force of fossil fuel hegemony. So I'll end with the same way I started. What would make you feel hopeful right now? I am hopeful. Nothing has to make me feel hopeful. I am hopeful, and I'll tell you why. I put my trust in the American people. To me, this is a question of this will happen when Americans insist on it. Americans are in favor of this. This will make us richer, better employed, better paid, and healthier. And I think this has got to be part of a progressive transformation of our society that puts Americans first and their interests first, and that we do this part of as a way of creating a much more of by and for the people democracy and a much more and a society that works for the vast bulk of its citizens. So I am hopeful because I believe that that is a a thesis and a vision that Americans already believe in and will get behind and we will kick their ass. Tom Steyer is the president and founder of Next Gen America. Thanks Tom. Thanks Joel. At the Sustainable Innovation Forum this week, I was on a panel with Jesper Broden, who's the new president and CEO of IKEA Group. I learned a lot about some of the things that they're doing, and then afterwards had a chance to talk to Carol Gubzinski. He is the climate energy manager at IKEA Group. Let's talk about uh, some really interesting things they're doing to help bring solar to their customers. So, Carol, tell me a little bit about how IKEA is selling energy, renewable energy, to its customers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as IKEA, we've been involved in uh, using uh, renewable energy for our own operations. So, we invested in uh, wind farms, in on-site solar on our rooftops. And then when we looked on the greenhouse gas emissions and how we can reduce it further and how we can use this knowledge, we said, why we shouldn't start to offer the same possibility to the many people? And uh, that's why, that's how the journey started with IKEA Home Solar. So we offer uh, today Home Solar on six markets. And one of them is Poland, where actually people, if they install the home so- uh, IKEA Home Solar installation on their rooftops, they can cut their electricity cost to 60%, which is, that's why we are doing that, because it's good for an environment, and as, at the same time, it's good for, for the pocket, for the, for the many people to benefit out of that. So does IKEA do installation and war- maintenance and everything? So we uh, partner up with, with the local companies as well, 
to create an offer together, which is very easy to understand for the people because we, we see that in general, the renewable energy topic, it's too complex for the many people. If they would like to start their journey, if they would like to uh, install on their rooftops. So what we are bringing as IKEA, it's a simple way to have access to uh, renewable energy. And uh, that's why we've been working a lot with the partners to design the uh, customer journey to make it easier for people to install on the, yeah, to have a solar energy. So what's the customer response been? Mm -hmm. It's very positive, especially when we are entering the, the market, people are very curious about, about the offer. And uh, the, uh, the interest is it's, it's very big. Uh, we see as well that is growing. We uh, and it's very much as well, of course, dependent on the local legislation. And uh, today, like in Poland or in uh, Netherlands, we see the growth of the customers who are who are installing the solar installations on their rooftops. So, are you selling this based uh, uh, as an environmental uh, benefit or as a fi financial cost-saving benefit? What what do consumers? Uh, why do they want to get renewable energy? People care, uh, and people understand what is happening now and what is climate change. In uh, 2017, IKEA uh, did research on 14 markets. We interviewed 14,000 people to understand what people think about climate change, what they are doing, and where they are in their journey. And what was very interesting to see that eight out of 10 people are saying that climate change is happening because of the people's, our activity. And 90% of people are willing to change behavior to fight climate change. And, but the, the challenge is that people very often have problem to name the solutions and how they can make it happen. And uh, since IKEA, it's very close to, to the people. We are in the people's homes and energy used at home, it's part of the environment and part of the footprint. We know that globally, households are generating 60% of greenhouse gas emissions directly or indirectly. And this is a great opportunity when we can support people to make it happen. And it's good for the planet and it's good for the business at the same time. I'm surprised you don't have a build your own solar uh, kit. Is that something in the horizon? Yeah, I cannot confirm for now, but uh, for now what we have is uh, IKEA Home Solar Offer. We see it's very important, the, the service part is super important, uh, how it's being done on the rooftops. It's not only about technology, it's about entire journey, actually. Yeah. Ah, I built this whole solar panel and there's one panel left over. Now, what do I do? No, that's a, that's a classic <laughs> IKEA joke. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so uh, is this have any plans to bring this to the United States? Mm -hmm. uh, we said that until uh, 2025, we will offer home solar across all the markets where Inca Group operates. So the biggest uh, IKEA franchisee. And uh, so US is one of them. So this is just one part, as you said at the beginning, of IKEA's of commitment. But your commitment is to be energy positive, climate positive? Yeah, so IKEA's commitment is to become climate positive until 2030. What does it mean? That until 2030, IKEA will reduce more greenhouse gas emissions than entire value chain emits. This means that we will meet Par uh, Paris Agreement we will look into the carbon capture and sequestration 
to uh, store the uh, through land management agriculture practices and we'll go and uh, look uh, beyond as well our value chain and the good example is it's home solar when we are offering the home solar installation for uh, for people then we are reducing the footprint not only from the led bulb that we sell but from the whole energy use in the home so impact it's much bigger and how we will do it there are there are three main uh, parts one of the parts is becoming truly circular where all the products uh, will be designed to be repurposed uh, resold uh, re repair and at the end recycled if there is no other option and designing as well the flows of these products enabling this circular living the second budget part is about renewable energy across value chain so it's not only about our operations but as well how i uh, ikea suppliers will use as well renewable energy and then the third part uh, that is about inspiring and enabling people to live within the limits of one planet by taking cli climate action great thank you so much carol yeah. thank you That was Ben Soli. He's an American cellist, singer, songwriter, and composer, also known for his political activism. Happened upon him performing at one of the many stages here at uh, COP24. Hi, this is Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer and analyst covering transportation for GreenBiz. And today we're going to talk about something you probably don't think a lot about unless you're driving into a Costco or circling the block trying to get to an appointment in a downtown area. Yep, that's right. We're going to talk about parking, something that's also universally hated, but generally required in many cities all over the world. And we're specifically going to talk about converting parking lots into things that are a lot more useful and sustainable in a world where hopefully less vehicles are driven. Which brings us to Los Angeles. LA has long been dominated by the automobile and has endless square miles of parking lots and parking structures. But in recent years, LA has been trying to refashion itself with public transportation and car-free mobility options. If a big chunk of the city's parking lots could be repurposed and converted into affordable housing or green space, what would that look like? I recently spoke with Christian Derricks, a principal with design and architecture firm Woods Bagot and head of their data analytics R&D shop Superspace. Earlier this year, the group unveiled research and an interactive simulation that shows that if all of the surface parking lots in LA County were developed into residential units, those lots could house 1.5 million to 3 million more people. On top of that, if these lots were converted, the city's density and space standards would remain the same, even with more people living in the city, or what the group calls FAR for floor area ratio. 
and such population growth also wouldn't contribute to sprawl at the edges of the city if the city's parking lots took on the burden. Here's Christian explaining the research. One of the main messages that came out um, from at least the uh, car parking lot study was that um, while the uptake of FAR across these three different regions, a county, metropolitan area or city limits, wouldn't actually be that much. So um, you would develop less than 10% of the areas across all three um, sizes, so to speak, or catchments. Um, and you would probably not do that all at once. You would actually start slowly. You know, you start now um, as an FAR level is actually not that high for counties. Also, the city is just below one as an FAR, floor area ratio. And then if you keep developing 25, 50, 75, 100% of these car parking lots, your overall FAR is hardly really increasing just by below 8%, for example, for the city from 0.91 to 0.98, so one roughly. So there's not really the argument against the fear of um, the scale exploding to something like another big city, right? Like New York or Hong Kong is not at all given. Um, but the positive effect of developing so little of the scale of the city is that you can house a lot more people and you can create a lot of housing from this. So we'll we found that with that just 0.8% increase of FAR within the city limits, for example, you can house almost a million more people. Uh, and um, that's quite significant. So your population increase would be nearly 25% for um, an 0.1% uplift of um, FAR. So this is really this is really a strong message that while people usually the opposition to development of of new residential units and blocks is that the fear that it may turn the character of LA into something like New York, yeah, we can show is not given. That fear is unfounded. Versus you can actually provide a lot more housing and, and house more people within the city by just developing, um, even if you don't house, maybe if you don't develop all of those plots, but say 50% of those lots, yeah, you're still housing half a million more people just within the city limits. Yeah? So um, that's actually a much stronger message. Um, and your sprawl on top of that could really decrease quite a lot. So if you, you would basically save yourself 164 square miles of sprawl um, if you developed only 50% of those car parking lots of 5,000 square feet. Housing, um, that's within the county. Um, housing 1.5 more million more people. So that's quite significant at a, at a county level. And of course, it's even more if you developed 100% of those lots, but that's probably not going to happen. Then you could even house 3 million more people within the county. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organizations, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. And as always, while you're there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage. It's the best of live interviews from Greenbiz events. You can hit us up by email, 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your cards and letters and don't forget to subscribe to one of our five weekly e-newsletters heather's energy weekly comes out every thursday and my green buzz newsletter is fresh every monday morning 
And before we let you go, a programming note. Heather and I will be taking next week off in the run-up to the holiday weekend. And we'll be back on December 28th for our year-end wrap-up. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Happy holidays, and thanks for listening. Thank you.